We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. My dad is quite enamored with the growth of his tomatoes. Yeah. It doesn't take much when you're old. Here's ah, Hey, 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 Thompson. What is that? Don't you be making fun of me and my toms. That's it. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, uh, what's going on in the world today? Ukraine pay, uh, passing uh, 500 days uh, since Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine, and Russia has, has suspended uh, Ukraine's uh, grain shipments uh, going out of that to uh, much-needed parts of the world, which uh, is not a good sign. Other stuff, Nike ends its Hockey Canada sponsorship. We remember the scandals. Uh, there were changes made. Not enough, says Nike. Uh, they're going elsewhere. So uh, interesting twist to that. Uh, and we still have people living in tents and refugees in Toronto streets. Um, you know, it's when you stifle housing development for 20 years before the global pandemic, you have a very much predicted housing shortage, an imbalance, because you don't want to build. Uh, and is the tide turning? And, you know, you know, honestly, I think my position on this changed just in the last few weeks. The poll question of the day asking you a new report suggests Canada needs more immigrants to make up for aging demographics. Uh, even though it will put more pressure on the housing market in you, are you in favor of bringing new, more newcomers to our country? I would guess that the majority of the Canadians would say yes. I would. My mom was an immigrant, came with the clothes on her back. Um, but there weren't people living in tents uh, in parks and such. There weren't refugees coming here who were expecting something different than what they are experiencing with lack of services to to, to take care of both those here and those that are arriving, uh, uh, you know, to our shores. So uh, it, it appears the tide is turning. And a new report suggests, and this is sad because this was a, self inf- a self-inflicted problem. It was an issue we've ignored for the last 20 years prior. Like the pandemic, it's an anomaly. You can't, you know, everything came to a grinding halt. But prior to the pandemic, we were in need of housing. Prior to the pandemic, we were in need of better, better health care. All this has done is accentuated the problem. And the poll question of the day, are you in favor of bringing in more newcomers to our country? And right now, uh, two-thirds of you are saying no. 67% are saying no. And I bet you if you had asked that question six months ago, the the numbers would be completely different. And it's not that Canadians don't want to help. It's not that we don't need newcomers it's we have people sleeping in tents everywhere everywhere because we've had 20 years in this province prior to the pandemic of nobody building anything thinking i don't know we'd all just move into apartments in the city i don't get it but it's a failure of our municipal provincial and federal politicians it's a complete failure and we need to build build and build and build what we didn't do for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, that's what we need to do. And I don't know whether it's the environmentalists with their urban sprawl, you know, nimbyism, you can't, I don't want that in my backyard. And again, we've had many experts on, even if you filled up every nook and cranny of every city, you're still not going to solve the housing issue because we're growing. We're growing at the rate of a large city a year. You don't just plug that into the vacant parking lots in the downtown core. And by the way, as someone who's lived in downtown in various cities across this country, people who live in high rises need a place to go. They need parks. They don't need another building in the vacant lot across the street so they can stare at somebody else while they're cooking their dinner. So, you know, again, we've had extremism control our housing our health care or what have you and it's and it's created an inability to find a solution and now canada the land of immigrants canada the land of immigrants who's been bragging and me too that we're going to bring a half a million people in a year they're sleeping on our streets and that's because there's canadians ahead of them waiting for housing 
And it's not just people trying to uh, join the middle class, which is the prime minister's favorite way of saying low-income poor people. It's right across the board, every category, every demographic. And you know what? If the middle class can't get a house, is it any wonder that those less vulnerable can't get a house? I mean, we always hear that, you know, whenever there's a problem, whenever there's a crisis, it always affects the bottom 10, 20. Well, of course it does. So here you have a problem, not a poor people's, not a lower middle end, not a, those trying to join the middle class problem. This is a problem right the way across the board. But as with every crisis, it is felt more with those who are trying to join rather than those that already have it. Everybody, everybody, everybody is feeling the pinch, which is why those that are more vulnerable are feeling it even more. Whether they're living in tents in our parks because they've been renovated, or whether they're sleeping on the streets of Toronto because the services they thought were here in the, the land of utopia aren't here for them. Enough of the BS from the politicians, and let's talk about when the rubber hits the road. Can anybody, does anybody have the leadership to manage this as opposed to just talk a good game? We're saving everybody. We're not saving a damn thing because we don't have a handle on it. And now you're going to create divisiveness over immigration because governments 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago weren't interested in building anything. Where is that left? The nimbyism. Where is that left? The environmentalists. Where is all that? Where's all those commercials about that person with the urban sprawl? Urban sprawl is progress. It's development. You just have to do it smartly. But you do nothing. Self-inflicted wound. Here we are, people living in the streets. It's time to change the direction. Sad news, especially if you're a Hamiltonian and you spent a lot of time watching CHCH Channel 11 uh, back in the day and still do, I'm sure. The original host of CHCH TV's Tiny Talent Time, Bill Lawrence, has passed away at the age of 91 on Friday night. And uh, I'm sure you all have your own memories. Me, it's uh, my aunt's house after dinner and everybody running to the TV to watch this. And uh, before you knew it, we were going to recitals with uh, my cousin to watch her and her baton, which she picked up from Tiny Talent Time. All right, Bill Brio is with us, TV critic and author, and is with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing fine, Scott. How are you? So far, so good. Your thoughts on this show and just in 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 what it did because it it made an awful impact, uh, an awful lot of impact, had a lot of a lot of, uh, an awful lot of impact with the kids of the day. Yes, it sure did. I was one of them. Uh, I was a youngster growing up in the West End of Toronto, Etobicoke, and uh, watched a lot of CHCH. And Bill Lawrence was just one of those great guys. Uh, when you were a little kid, he was such a great communicator, like the friendly giant Bob Honey mm. or Mr. Dress Up Ernie Com- Coombs. He just made you feel uh, self-assured and relaxed. And he was a just a, a very friendly, it was like a neighbor, you know? And so yeah. when he was talking to kids on that show, uh, that was really the most important part was the conversations with the, that he had with young youngsters. Uh, and talk about this era of television. Oh yeah. You know, I'm still bitter at my parents, by the way, they never gave me accordion lessons. <laughs> what the hell? I, I got a, I got a guitar bill and you know, you got to practice apparently if you want to take that up and then there you go off. It went to someone else. It did say tiny talent time. That was the part that kept me off the show that the talent, but, um, <laughs> it, it was just a wonderful time. You know, there's, you know, uh, people, some listeners old enough might remember art link letter. He had a show yep. on around this same era in the black and white days of TV called uh, Kids Say the Darndest Things. And he would talk to kids. And I actually got to interview him late in his life. He lived to be 99 and asked him about it. Was it true that there were some of those conversations that were kind of embarrassing? Like he would ask a kid about, well, is, is mom is mommy? And what about your daddy? And he said, well, I don't have a daddy, but. I have several uncles who sleep over now and then. You know. <laughs> oh, you have to think there's got to be a great uh, blooper reel from this show. There must be, but it's, that's the sad part about Tiny Talent Time and a lot of shows yeah. is that everything era. was a race. Those early yeah. days, they yeah. were either live or there was no tape. So there 
I know this show lasted 35 years into the 90s and Bill Lawrence hosted, but it's only those final years where people at home would have VHS machines that they could record their youngster on the show. The early ones uh, are lost. And Bill Lawrence at, 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 came up at a time when, you know, whether you're a weatherman, you, you were a utility guy, you did everything. He was hired in 1954 when the station opened. Uh, he was fresh from Ryerson. They hired him to be a technician. He became a director, a floor director, a writer. You know, uh, they soon saw this guy was very glib and presented well. And so uh, in three years, he was hosting Tiny Talent Time, but he went on to be a weatherman in Hamilton, also on Toronto CBLT for many years. Very familiar face to kids and adults. And I got to meet him in 2014 when the station rebooted Tiny Talent Time and they brought him back as part of the press launch. And uh, it was the same Uncle Bill. It was quite a thrill to meet him. Hmm. Why was this show successful? Well, I, back in the, like we were talking those early days to be on TV, that was part of your neighborhood. You know, you yeah. knew a kid who had been on the show uh, and we all watched television. We all watched the same shows. So it really was the only sort of nowadays we have Canada's Got Talent and, you know, other star search shows. But in terms of youngsters, this was it. Tiny talent time. And, um, you know, you didn't have all these. You, you know, you didn't even have VHS tapes. You didn't have cable. You know, there was just a few channels. Uh, your TV dial went to 13 and that was hmm. it. And half of that was in Buffalo. And so anything that was local was fascinating, you know, and you wanted to be part of it. You talked about the other talent shows. And even if you watch those, I mean, my goodness, the, the level of talent is quite high. Did the talent matter here as much as it was, you know, a little Jimmy or Jane trying to do something? That's all that mattered, that it was the kids got to be on TV and their aunts and uncles got to see them. The talent really wasn't the deal. And I remember, uh, you know, Scott, there was another show, Professor's Hideaway. This is only five mm. listeners will remember this, but it was basically a guy. It might have been out of Hamilton. And, you know, you watch this as a little kid. My parents knew I watched so you could write away and they would tell them your birthday and they would read, they would say happy birthday on the air. So sure. my parents are all excited. And they go, well, you got to watch Professor's Hideaway today. And I'm like, this is unusual. Why are they asking me to watch TV? And this guy goes, and we have birthdays for Scott. And, and also a birthday for little Billy Bricks. There's a surprise <laughs> under the bed. And, and I'm thinking, well, some kid named Billy Bricks, what do I care? You know, that's not me. And my parents were like, that stupid idiot. You know, that actually uh, happened. I'm of course, referring to the spelling of your last name, which is B R O B R I O X U X, rather. I'm just as bad. Uh, that's hilarious to to hear those old stories. Um, yeah. uh, are we seeing that now on social media? Is that what social media is? Uh, it's pretty much everybody. We're seeing everybody's talent and whatever on those. Yeah, I guess so. I just think that it was a more innocent age. Uh, even young kids are more sophisticated now. Um, you know, and when they went to reboot uh, Tiny Talent Time, really didn't stick. And I think mm. kids today, uh, you know, and, or back in 2014, were more into Nintendo than Uncle Bill. You know, it was yeah. that thrill of being on TV. Well, so what? I was on my dad's DVD or, you know, there's other ways you could be on your phone instantly. Uh, back then, it was just to be on this black and white box that was the magic screen. Bill Brio with us, TV critic and author and the original host of CHCH TV's Tiny Talent Time. Bill Lawrence has passed away uh, in a legacy and a legendary show. Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thanks, Scott. You take care. I think uh, we've got a poll question of the day. It's a pretty good one. And I think this would have been a different outcome six months ago uh, because I think Canadians are, are, are generally pretty supportive uh, the majority on immigration because we're all immigrants in some form. Uh, you know, my mom came here, clothes on her back, a suitcase after the war. There's lots of those stories uh, right up to present day. So I, I think Canadians are, well that Canada, are aware that Canada is a, uh, a land of immigrants. However, when you're seeing what has happened with the housing crunch and the fact that, well, pre-pandemic for 20 years, 25 years, we really haven't been building houses. And the developer is a, a, a bad name, a bad person. 
and you can't stifle development for 20 years pre-pandemic and then not to expect to have a predicted housing shortage. This is a self-inflicted wound. And now it's affecting our immigration counts or people's perception of them as we're hearing we need more and more and more. A town's the size of 500,000 people every year in order to sustain where we are. Yet we have people living in tents. We have refugees coming in who thought when they got here, there'd be services available. Instead, they're sleeping in the street. So when we focus on this, let's not just focus on the people sleeping on the street or the people sleeping in parks. This is a housing crisis that goes right the way across every category, every demographic. And as they say, when there's a crisis somewhere, it's always those on the lower end that are going to experience it the most severely. And that's exactly what we're, what's happening here. But the solution is beyond that. And here we have the results when you don't build houses. Very simple. And politicians of every stripe, politicians, whether you're municipal, provincial, or federal, should be ashamed of what we're seeing. Because over and above immigrants, over and above the poor people, nobody can afford to buy a house. And there aren't any houses to be had. That's why the prices are so high. How has our tone changed? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR pop culture expert. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you, Scott. It's an important subject. Is our tone changing on this? And it's sad because, you know, it's politicians that are creating this divisiveness and it's a self-inflicted problem. Is the tone changing? You know, it's interesting. There's been a lot of uh, features lately, and I I know that Will sent you one from the New York Times that basically shows, has all this data that has become available, not just recently, but I think people have been looking at it, of the aging demographic. And when you have an aging demographic, you have less people working. And when you have less people working, then your economic strength certainly goes down. And there is some research that has that says, and this is through this New York Times um, poll, and anybody can go read it. It was published yesterday. It's a very large feature. And it talks about the oldest countries in the world. Apparently, Japan is number one. And they say that by 2050, that Canada will be among the uh, the top, one of the top 50 oldest countries. So, you know, Scott, you have people sort of sitting in these think tanks and sitting at desks in various places around the country going, oh, this is going to be a problem in 27 years. And then they say, okay, well, let's start bringing more immigrants over. But, you know, the trickle down effect of bringing in more immigrants, like fine, bring in more immigrants, but have the foundational um, parts that uh, that you very articulately mentioned in your upfront that said, first of all, where are you going to house them? Second of all, are the social services there to take care of them? Third of all, are you planning on depending on, you know, churches and self-organized neighborhood groups to sort of take care of these people? And are you just going to have these people land here? So the whole service part of this, the whole about, okay, you want immigrants, you want to be able to shore up on our manufacturing. You know, there was a stat about, I think last year, Scott, you and I talked about it, that there's, we are minus 80,000 people that we need for manufacturing jobs in this province. So fine, if you want to bring those people in, but they've got to live somewhere, they got to eat somewhere, they got to be trained somewhere, and they have to have their hand held for at least a year. So how does all that happen? It seems that we kind of, those people making those those suggestions of what we need to do, kind of, you know, forget that part, put all the onus on the municipalities, not just, you know, and mainly primary urban centers, and say, okay, well, they're coming, so figure it out. Yeah. And that's And that's frightening. It's not that we want to say no. Well, you know, according to your poll, there's lots of people who want to say no, which I found very interesting. And I just checked it again. I, I think that would be different, though, six months ago. I think it would have been way different. I think just the yeah, whole, I think so you know, too. I think, I think, that, I think that, yeah, the tent encampments that people are seeing in every town and city, it's just not the major centers. It's in small cottage country towns uh, have made people realize we got a problem, just like we didn't realize we had a health care problem until we had a pandemic. We've been sitting on our hands in the pre-pandemic era, counting the money and not doing anything, not building anything. And now we're paying the price. This was self-inflicted. 
Well, and, and also, you know, the point about, you know, we didn't know we had a broken healthcare system until we had the pandemic. Of course we did. Yes, we did. Yeah. But you know, yeah. But it wasn't broken enough for anybody to actually put a line in the sand and say, we need to fix it. Because yeah. goodness knows if you need to fix it, that means, you know, you might not get elected. You might have to make some tough, tough decisions next time. You, uh, you know, might have to spend some money. People aren't going to like that. So, you know what? You, you shuffle it off to, you know, when you get elected again or to the next government who has to take care of it. The same thing with housing. We know that. That there's a problem. We know, we have always known there's a problem. We've been seeing for the last decade, prices go up, 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 up. I was talking to people today, you know, when my husband's parents bought their first house a million years ago, but mm-hmm. I mean, it was in Hamilton on uh, Winston Avenue for $6,000. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, we've, we've seen these exponential increases that basically keep people out of the market versus keeping people into the, getting people into the market, nor are we building, uh, you know, housing that will be affordable enough for people to come in and take advantage of it. You know, you, you drive around Toronto, downtown Toronto, and all you can see are cranes. There are cranes everywhere and they're building condominiums. How much of that is affordable housing? I would probably say about 10 to 20%. And you've got a young, a younger generation who has no hope. So, you know, again, like whenever, whenever these situations happen, um, you know, we see a lot run towards them with band-aids and we need to do more. We need to do more. Well, we need to make sure we don't create the situation first and then have to play catch up afterwards. But again, it's like this problem's, you know, it's only attractive when it affects those on the lower end, but it only makes an impact when it affects everybody. And that's what we're forgetting now is this affects everybody right the way across the board. And if you have it at one end, you're going to have it extreme at the other end. And, and again, we have to move forward here. We're more interested in a damn green belt than we are in getting people out of tents and out of our parks. There's got to be a solution here. You know, it's as if, you know, our municipal leaders, our provincial leaders and and MPPs and MPs, you know, it's as if, you know, you drive around with your eyes closed and you don't want to look at what you don't want to look at, especially if it's not in your riding. Yeah. So if it's not in your riding, then maybe it's not so much of your concern. So, you know, I think the priorities have to change, but that that's top down, right, Scott? We know that. You know, priorities are set at the very top and then they trickle down and that's what you talk about. And you're, you know, every political party gives a a set of talking points and that's what you say. You know, we always seem to be reactive on these things. Very rarely are we seeing something where it's proactive. You know, there was a child care benefit that was proactive. You know, that took a lot of people, got a lot of people out of the house and back to work because now they could suddenly afford child care. But you know what? That is far and few between. So we're always reactive and then we're sitting there gnashing our teeth, you know, and, and grinding our nails thinking, well, now what are we going to do? It's like we're saving the world, but we don't want to do the work. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, well, nobody really wants to do the work because heaven forbid you don't get uh, voted in next time. Yeah. And that's, well. and that's what, you know, you and I have become sort of very jaded about the whole process. You know, I, when I was younger, I used to look at elections as, you know, renewal. Let's get things done. This is what they say they're going to do. Bah, 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 bah. And then all it is is, you know, let's get the club back into the power again. And then, you know, let's just make sure we stay in power and make decisions that basically curry the favor of those who put us in power in the first place. So and as we become more lackadaisical about, you know, the electoral process, that percentage of population actually going out and voting is becoming lower and lower. Mm. It becomes hard to complain about who we put in there to put in who we put into power. It becomes hard to complain about the lack of decision making or that you don't like what they're doing. So I think that there's a lot of mobilization on the grassroots that says, listen, if you really want to put the heels, you know, the, the feet to the fire, then Make sure that, you know, your voice is heard. And the one way your voice is heard is by saying who you want in power in the first place. But uh, by the same token, what you're saying, also I agree with, is that don't wait to be reactive. Don't wait to all of a sudden throw your hands up in the air and say, oh, my gosh, we now have a, a severe crisis. When you knew all along, you've had all the information. It's just that now you decided to do something about it. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, poll question of the day, asking you if you are still as supportive of immigration, uh, considering where we are uh, in the housing crisis. Uh, Feel free. It's on our Twitter page. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. All right. Summer in full swing. Are you bored yet? 
Mom, I got nothing to do. Dad, can you take me somewhere? We can... Uh, well, from basketball to video game tournaments to employment workshop paint nights, Hamilton is hosting its biggest, uh, biggest youth rec week, uh, kicking off today. To talk more about all of this, Victoria uh, Karakesh is with us, recreation manager with the city of Hamilton, and here now. Victoria, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thank you very much for having me. So what is Youth Rec Week? Ooh, what isn't Youth Rec Week is the best question. Uh, <laughs> youth Rec Week is a series of fun events, workshops, activities that are all dedicated to youth ages 12 to 17 in our community. As you said, and- it's summertime, school is out, so what better way to celebrate our youth? So what's the objective here? What are you trying to do? We are trying to engage as much youth as we can in our rec centers, at our parks, either employment-based or just having fun with our recreation programs. So this is going on citywide? Citywide. We are Ancaster to Winona. We are all over. So what sort of programs can we find at these these city facilities? Uh, We've got a few very awesome ones. We've got an Opportunities Fair, which is employment-based. So we're partnering with some other divisions throughout the city that also offer employment for our youth. Um, and that's happening on Tuesday, so tomorrow. We've got basketball tournaments, so some three-on-three at Valley Park and Central Memorial. We have video game tournaments, uh, a coffee house, which is new this year. This is our first uh, kick at that can, a coffee house at Bonetto on Saturday night. Um, we have lots. You know, uh, many times when you see programs like this, like you said, it's sports, tournaments, it's crafts, it's all sorts of stuff to get kids engaged. But the employment uh, angle of it, this is a great idea. This is a, a workshop, not necessarily video games, but something that will have an impact on, on the kids' life moving forward. Absolutely. They can choose to go either path. They can join us for some employment-based workshops or just participate in the rec. So we have a, an Employment 411, which is our job readiness program that we run throughout the year. So we're offering one starting this week. And it ends with some free certification, so a high-five principles of healthy childhood development course and a free standard first aid and CPRC, which are all notable certifications to help you get a job within recreation in the future. What a great idea. How do you decide what to do, what programs? Like, how did you get from basketball and video games to employment? How do you design these? We went with uh, some of the opportunities that we did last year. We had about 16 similar events running last year, and we had over 500 youth engagements over the course of that week, and that was our first ever Youth Rec Week. So this year we went big, we went 40 events, and we just came up with as many as our camp counselors, our youth facilitators, and our recreation coordinators that were able to come and put their brains together and see what we could do. So, and what's the feedback been like from parents? So far, so good. I was just at the lawn games and kickball this afternoon, and we had a few grandparents and parents drop off and just said that they love the idea for youth because some youth are bored and they just want to get out and do something. No, it's a great idea. Uh, What about cost, that sort of thing? Is there any cost to the parents? All free, all free programs. All right. So if people want to find out more, where do they go? Uh, Hamilton.ca backslash youth rec week. We have a full calendar of events. It shows you where to register. If it's a drop in and just, Pick what activities you want to do for the day. And as you mentioned, a lot of this is is sort of capsulated versions of programs that you already run on a regular basis. Absolutely. Fitness, basketball, volleyball, employment, we've got it all. All right, Victoria Karakesh with us, Recreation Manager with the City of Hamilton. And the Youth Rec Week kicks off today. Basketball, video game tournaments, employment workshops, paint nights, all kinds of stuff to keep the chitlins busy. Uh, over a summer. Victoria, good luck with all this moving forward. Thanks for the time. Thank you very much. All the best. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly remember last year uh, the scars uh, that um, that um, covered Hockey Canada. My goodness, Um uh, sponsorship scandals, uh, sponsorship deals falling through as a result of scandals involving payback and uh, or payouts to uh, victims and such sexual assault allegations. 
uh, and and we eventually saw the the board resign and changes made. We thought perhaps that would have been it. However, we now find out that Nike has permanently ended its sponsorship of Hockey Canada, finalizing an earlier pause in its marketing uh, and dealing a financial blow to the organization as it continues from the fallout of the sexual assault scandal of last year. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, is here now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Glad to be with you. So, Marvin, again, we saw the board replaced. Many thought this was behind them. Are you surprised to hear from uh, or hear that Nike is doing this at this time? So I'm going to say no, but first, if you don't mind, let me just take you back. So the, the, the spit hit the fan last year in October. This is when really everything blew up and, and people were called in front of the parliament to give testimony. And that led to both the board of directors being fired and the CEO of the organization stepping down. An interim CEO was appointed, a, a search committee was appointed, a new board was found, and every sponsor, every major sponsor of Hockey Canada uh, used this word a year ago. They said, we are suspending, not terminating, we are suspending our sponsorship pending what happens. And so it's been many, many months, a new board has been found, a new CEO, it's a woman. She was the head of Curling Canada, was appointed earlier. And her first job is to meet again with all those sponsors and say, OK, I'm the new captain driving the boat. Here are my plans and to reassure them. Now, again, to contrast this, Bauer, a name you might know from from skates, has resigned. It said, OK, we're coming back. We're going to sponsor Hockey Canada. So that one came back. But Nike has said no. And I guess I'm, I'm surprised they didn't say that instead of saying we're disavowing or we're disconnecting to Hockey Canada, we're going to continue the suspension pending more time. In other words, if this new CEO can really make some magic happen, then maybe a year from now we'll come back to say sort of flat out, we're, we're done, we're not coming back. That is a surprise. Um, so is this a business decision or, I mean, cause you know, they always say when things change, uh, despite whether it's a crisis or what have you, uh, habits change, people move on to other options. Is this a business decision or is this a moral decision for them? No, I'm pretty sure it's a business decision. Uh, Nike likes to associate itself with winners. You'll remember once upon a time, we never even thought of the name Nike in golf, but they liked, they got in bed with Tiger Woods and Famously, there was a shot of Tiger Woods in which the Nike golf ball hung on the edge of a cup and then suddenly fell in to allow him to win the Masters. Those are the moments Nike dreams about. And and for the moment, there is more ill will associated with the Hockey Canada brand than goodwill. So it is pulled out. Now, the big question, Scott, is are we seeing a trend? Remember, Bauer's back in. Nike is out. Here are some other people sitting on the sidelines. Tim Hortons, Scotiabank. Are they going to come back? Are, are they going to stay on the sidelines and then for how long? So I will be interested in watch. I think this is going to trigger people to say one way or another, are they coming back? And we'll hear that probably over the next month. So for the next year, for someone like Nike, no news is good news? If, if the waters stay calm? Well, maybe even better than staying calm, uh, what they would like to see is progress. And so we have a new CEO. We have a new board. Okay, what are you going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again? Remember, it's, it's partly about the payments, but it's more about setting up a system to make sure there are no more assaults on women by hockey yeah. players. Uh, okay, yes, if somebody made a mistake in the past, people need to be compensated, what have you. But what are you doing to make sure it doesn't happen again? And the previous board didn't seem to be doing anything other than paying out these million-dollar settlements, and that doesn't solve the problem. So. That's the big question here. What are you doing to change the culture of hockey in Canada? So what does this mean for Hockey Canada? Well, the big the big part of this is Hockey Canada, about half of its annual operating budget of around $50 million comes from sponsorships, about $25 million. We do not know the breakdown one by one, but Nike was considered one of its quote-unquote premier sponsors. So I'm guessing that means that they were on the order of 2 to $5 million that's going to be a hit to their budget. Now, if the others come back, I'm sure they can manage. If the others say we're going to continue our suspension or like Nike say, we are disavowing ourselves and we're out of there, then how is Hockey Canada going to function with a severely reduced budget? And so these are the questions facing that CEO and why they would like to know where they stand. By the way, you know, as one person goes, it could create an opportunity 
Uh, there's another company you may have heard of called Under Armour, which would mm. be more than happy to supply uniforms, I'm sure. Will they say, well, if Nike's getting out, it's our time to get in. There's going to be a lot of dynamics over the next six to eight months on this question. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Groot School of Business at McMaster University. Nike has permanently ended its sponsorship of Canada, Hockey Canada, after pausing it earlier on. Uh, Marvin, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. I will. Thank you. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Poll question of the day you can find on our CHML Twitter page. A new report set, uh, suggests Canada needs more immigrants to make up for aging demographics. Not uh, Nothing new there. We've heard that forever. Uh, but even though it will put more pressure on the housing market, the question, are you in favor of bringing more newcomers to our country? Uh, this very unofficial poll saying 68% of you are saying yes. Uh, I would suggest that a year ago, that would be a very different result. However, once you start to see people uh, who can't afford homes are being renovicted or what have you living in tents virtually uh, in every size center across the province, across the country, whether it's a big city or a small town and refugees living in streets because the uh, services that they thought were uh, uh, waiting for them here are, are just simply not available. Um, so we are where we are. How do we move forward on this? Let's bring in Bruce Newbold, professor in the School of Earth, Environment, and Society, McMaster University, and here now. Bruce, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good, thanks. Scott, good to be here. Bruce, we all know we need immigrants coming in for uh, lots of reasons. We've been over them several times, uh, and and everybody was all in until a few months ago when we started to see our parks fill up with with tent encampments and and refugees living in streets here. How do we balance this? How we know we need the bodies, but we also need to house them. How do we move forward with this? Yeah, so I think we're really sort of hitting on. Um, you know, a series or different topics. So one is housing, one is, uh, you know, how do we deal with our homeless population? And another one is that job need. And we have to try to find a balance in there somewhere. We certainly know, you've already said it, that we need immigrants. And, you you know, we hear about this all the time on the news and uh, or in our day-to-day experiences. We don't have enough health care providers. We don't have enough people working in construction. Uh, we don't have enough people working in our resource sector. So immigration provides one of those places where we can get people in and have them work. The challenge then is how do we house them? How do we provide for them? And we're, we, you know, we're working through that, but it's, it's, we don't have all of the answers right now. I think we really need to be creative uh, in terms of some of our housing policy. The difference here, though, it seems, Bruce, is that the housing situation is affecting everyone. So whether you're a young person, you've lost hope because you can't, you know, after your education, uh, afford a, a home and, uh, again, low supply high demand, uh, and obviously whenever there's a crisis that affects everybody, it affects those at the lower end even more. This is a massive issue, not just for those trying to join uh, the middle class. How did we get to this? Because many predicted it. Um, many said they weren't interested in building. We've, you know, pre-pandemic, 5, 10, 20 years ago, building is a bad word. So how did we get here? How, especially when now we have all four political parties saying we need to build a million homes in the last provincial election. How did we get here? Yeah. So one of the problems there is when we're talking about building homes, oftentimes developers see that as the need to build big, expensive homes. They're not building for, you know, those uh, with lower incomes, those that have just come into the country, uh, that sort of thing. So we need to think and get developers on board here in terms of building homes. Bruce, 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 I'm going to interrupt you here yeah. uh, because we're going down the same path that we've been down many times in the show, and and it's it's developer, developer, developer. The municipality holds the strings. They can control what they do. We're built not building neighborhoods now the way we used to build them in 1950. In a square block, we're building big homes, small homes, 
Uh, we're building uh, detached homes. We're building medium-density housing. We're integrating it all with parkland and bike paths and whatever. We don't build neighborhoods the way we used to do. Uh, so, again, you know, here we are. All they're building is mansions. All they're building is this. And really, Bruce, that, that, you know, that's just not the case. Because at the end of the day, it's the municipality that holds the strings. Whatever kind of neighborhood you want to build, you can build it. And now... The leverage is there. So when do we stop blaming developers and start taking responsibility for what the guidelines the developers follow? Well, I'm, I'm going to stay on the developer side here, and I'm going to say, yeah, you know, we have to be on the developers. Having said that, it is, you know, that we, you know, we can work with our planners, we can work with our counselors to encourage those sorts of opportunities so that, you know, the counselors... Um, you know, our elected officials and not just at the local level, but at the provincial level as well, you know, and hold the developers feet to the fire and say, hey, you've got to do this. You know, developers, yeah, we might be building uh, multi-unit dwellings. That doesn't mean that they're inexpensive. And so we really need to think about those. But they're expensive, Bruce, because there's it's a supply and demand issue. You know, I heard somebody say, we're not going to build our way out of this. Well, yes, that's exactly what you have to do. Urban sprawl is also development. You can't have a small size Canadian city move in every year and not be fully prepared for it. We've been, we've been passing the buck. We've been stalling. We've been get caught up in, in, in red tape that not only serves a purpose, but also delays. And all we've done is gone around and around and around. And we are where we are. It's a self-inflicted wound, Bruce, is it not? In part, it is for sure. I think, you know, one of the pieces that we're missing here is that we're assuming that, you know, it's one house per family type of thing. We're not thinking about uh, pieces where we can provide opportunities in the same house for multiple generations to live. We do that a little bit. We could do it a lot more. And there's an opportunity for, uh, you know, our local housing groups to say, Let's build houses or let's be creative in terms of expanding the opportunities for multiple generation families. Um, you know, that's one way that we can uh, start to be creative around the housing piece. And, and you know, I, I don't want to sound here, Bruce, like I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a wacky right winger here. I'm not. I'm a centrist. I voted for all three political parties at one time or another. But it seems right now we care and, and I care deeply about the green belt. It's there for a reason let's let's work with it but it seems we're caring more about the damn green belt than we are that we have citizens not as, as well as newcomers citizens living in tents we seem to be caring more about the green belt than we than we do with that we have a, a housing crisis on our hands as a result of this and we have municipalities that are yelling at the government for opening the green belt when they themselves are sitting on their own usable land here how do we how do we break that? Well, and that's a really difficult question because I'm going to sit here and say we cannot touch that green belt. That is something that we need to build and maintain for our future generations, mm-hmm. the protection of our natural environment. But I think, you know, inside of our cities, we need to be looking where can we put in more units? We're, you know, and people won't like it. I know there'll be people listening on the on the call here this afternoon when I say we have to increase the density, more people in a small unit of area. A lot of people won't like that, but that's one of the things that we need to do is is create new opportunities, new housing opportunities in a small footprint for people. We need to be thinking, you know, small apartments that, again, are are, uh, on the less expensive side. It seems, though, that, you know, a lot of people are looking at, again, we live in a world of extremes. That's the solution. And I've talked to many experts that say, yes, that's absolutely part of the solution, but that's not going to solve the housing issue. We're not going to uh, solve this problem and, and house half a million people just by densifying our neighborhoods. There has to be smart communities built out as well. Can we at least arrive at the conclusion that it's a combination of all of this? Oh, I, I, yeah, I think that's exactly it, Scott, that we need, you know, it's not one, it's not one magic bullet that's going to solve everything. We need to be thinking in multiple ways. But, you know, if we're going to develop new communities, say, beyond the green belt, but then let's also invest and get our government to invest in good public transit that's going to get people from those communities 
into our downtowns, into the places where they're going to work. For example, we need those connections. Otherwise, we're just going to be putting more cars on the road. And that's a whole other issue, um, you know, and and, in, and talk about poor air quality, time to commute, lost time for people. You know, there's a there's a whole host of different problems that comes with that. So when we plan for that housing, we need to think holistically. We need to think about that big picture provide the transportation opportunities, provide the shopping opportunities, all of those things that go together to that make, you know, a community livable. And then once we do all that, Bruce, we got to build. We actually have to do it instead of yep. just uh, passing it around and around and around yeah. and around and, and around. Instead of waiting years and years yeah. to build that new rapid transit line or something like that, let's, let's get it done. Bruce Newbold with us, Professor School of Earth, Environment and Society, McMaster University. Thanks, Bruce. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Take care. RCMP could one day transform into a federal police agency. You thought that's what they were, but no, this means operating more like the FBI uh, as opposed to local day-to-day police forces that they do in some uh, Ontario center, some uh, Canadian centers. So the shift to focus on challenges like security, national security, terrorism, financial crime, cyber crime, whatever, and then leave the local policing uh, to someone else. Is this a good idea whose time has come? Should it have been done in the past? Christian Leprec with this professor, both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. You bet. Good afternoon, Scott. Nice to talk. So- so basically, I'm guessing, Christian, uh, out of the day-to-day policing business into more federal type of crimes here is the reasons for this. Is this a good idea? Well, uh, I think we're all familiar with the various reports on the RCMP, just the recent reports, mm-hmm. uh, the Mass Casualty Commission, uh, the Moncton shootings, the Kent County Review by the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission, uh, the report on Mayor Thorpe, uh, the various concerns that people have raised about some RCMP conduct, about institutional culture, uh, and of course, the dozens uh, of reports that I have detailed in a 2017 study uh, for for the McDonald Laurier Institute uh, that make it clear that change is needed. And part of the reason that change is needed is A, the span of control for the commission of the RCMP is larger than for any police force anywhere in the democratic world. Hmm. The second is no other country has set up their policing the way Canada has, where effectively we have a federal police force that spends 85% of its time, people, and resources effectively doing local policing on contract for provinces, for territories, for local communities, uh, and for indigenous communities. Um, and third is that uh, the these local communities have relatively little control uh, over this force, because effectively uh, it is it is a federal force that the federal minister is responsible for, and so the corollary is um, the federal government has realized that not only is this generating a whole host of issues at the local level in terms of quality and quantity of policing being provided, but is also generating issues at the federal level because we ostensibly have a federal police force that's supposed to be doing uh, gun trafficking, that's supposed to be looking after issues such as foreign interference, counterterrorism, um, and so forth, and uh, that ultimately is not uh, is performing suboptimally both in terms of its federal mandate as well as contract policing mandate. Why is this controversial? Because people don't like change. Well, so there's a host of reasons. I think the most immediate is this is controversial with every member of parliament, irrespective of what party they sit for, because every member of parliament delivers two services in their writings. That is the post office and RCMP services, whether it's federal services in Ontario and Quebec, uh, or it's federal and local services in many other parts of the the country. The second is If you transition out of this model, what is the alternative? There are literally parts of this country that cannot pay for their policing services. So the local policing, the RCMP does, covers only about 15% of the Canadian population, but it tends to be some of the most challenging areas to provide policing. Think of the territories, think of some indigenous communities, think of rural policing. These Often the RCMP is is the only public service that is immediately on site uh, when there's an issue and other public services services are far away. Um, And so um, 
under the under the current model, the federal government effectively pays uh, seventy cents on the dollar for most of those communities. Some of the newer contracts are eighty cents, ninety cents, or even a hundred a hundred percent of cost. Um, but how would you provide, for instance, policing um, in the maritime provinces in areas that already have real difficulty paying for the services um, that the RCMP and that other forces are providing? And we see this in some of the fallout from the port pick shooting at the MASH Casualty Commission. Uh, so there will need to be some continued involvement by the federal government, not just in, uh, financially, uh, but likely also in some capacities for service provision uh, that simply some regions of the country cannot afford. Uh, considering where we are with issues of national security, whether it's cyber, whether it's election interference or whatever, if not now, when? Is this time to do this? <laughs> So, uh, look, I mean, uh, we had, you might uh, think back to the Ottawa convoy in February 2022. One of the arguments for this national police force has always been that it provides surge capacity because it has 17,000 members. Um, and uh, of those members, 2,500 of them, roughly, work in Ontario and Quebec. Well, it took three weeks to generate a little bit over 900 Mounties um, in order to be able to staff up and do effective enforcement against the convoy. So I think that blew open the argument that this is a police force that can provide surge capacity uh, in case of, uh, of a national emergency. And I think that's when the federal government realized um, that if this police force cannot deliver a timely reaction to pressing needs by the federal government, whether that was in terms of border plugates or in terms of uh, um, of the Ottawa convoy, uh, then perhaps um, they need to look at real and serious reform. I mean, the reform so far has always looked at changing out the commissioner whenever the federal government doesn't like what's happening. And what do we call, what's the definition of insanity? You do the same thing over and over again mm. and hope for a different outcome. So it looks like somebody in Ottawa has clued in that perhaps more change is needed than simply changing out the commissioner. These uh, contract policing uh, contracts across the country with the provinces run out in 2032. Now is the time to make to start making changes. The provinces are getting nervous because they need runway to plan. This is bound to be highly political. Uh, if the RCP is getting out of those local communities, how we, are we going to replace those? Alberta is looking at expanding the sheriff's service and so forth. Um, but this is going to require some careful coordination. And so uh, uh, I think this is good news overall. It's something I've called for for over a decade. We need a federal police force that delivers on federal priorities. But at the same time, we can't leave local communities that have relied for decades on the RCMP to their policing shortchanged. Christian Leprac with us, professor of Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute. As always, Christian, thanks for the time. Be well. A real pleasure. Have a great afternoon, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've all known, and we've talked about this for a long time, in the last couple of years, 500,000 uh, new Canadians coming in every year. More than that, if you count students and such. Uh, and, and I think everybody's been fine with that and happy and, and what have you. Let's keep growing, growing, growing until all of a sudden people started living in tents. Uh, and this isn't just in the major centers. This is in small towns all across the land. Refugees coming in and they got to sleep on streets because the services they thought were available when they arrived are not available. Uh, the housing crisis here is affecting more than just young people who are trying to get into a home for the very first time and start their families. And the poll question of the day, uh, the new report suggesting more immigrants needed for aging demographics. We know that, but even though it will put more pressure on the housing crisis and the market that we are in, the question, are you in favor of bringing in new com uh, more newcomers to our country? The surprising unofficial result, 68% no more which I think if you would have done this a year ago, the outcome would have been completely different. I don't think this has become, uh, this is because Canada is against immigration, which most of us are, or our parents or grandparents were. It's a case of we're not prepared. We can't provide for ourselves. And there's always crisis. There's always an issue. We'll get it done. We'll make it happen. However, in a post-pandemic world, affordability and just the sheer lack of supply of housing have driven prices 
through the roof, not only for the middle class, but those trying to join the middle class. And we all know with crisis, it affects those at the lower end more than anyone else, especially when it affects everyone. So um, how do we move forward with this? How do we balance the much-needed immigration we know we're going to need with the housing crisis that we have. Let's bring in Michael Veal, Professor of Economics at Bastyr University, Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Center, and here now. Michael, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Hope you are too. So we all know that how many are coming in. We know why they need why we need them, all the reasons for. And I think most Canadians are behind this. Until we started seeing a massive problem in just like with the health network after uh, COVID-19 we're experiencing with housing right now. Um, the chickens have come home to roost. The rubber's hitting the road. We're seeing the result of not enough building over the last 5, 10, 20 years. How do we now balance this, Michael, with bringing in the people that we know we need and trying to get them housed when we have a housing situation with those here trying to get housing? Uh, so the short answer is I don't know. It's a really tough problem. Uh, I personally think that now is not the time to add roughly 200,000 uh, new immigrants into the into the stream. I don't think Canada should be thinking about reducing its immigration to to zero by any means. But for quite a while, Canada showed pretty good tolerance in terms of being able to to manage immigration flows in the 300,000 range. Uh, now that we're talking 500,000, I don't believe it's the only reason that the housing uh, issue is is so difficult. But I think it's part of the reason, and I think it's also very difficult uh, to continue to bring in uh, so many immigrants and then have their experience, their first experience in Canada, uh, be so so much worsened by the lack of housing. Do you think the tone of Canadians has changed as a result of this? Um, I'm not a real expert on that sort of uh, political polling, but it is my sense. Uh, Canada has always been a pretty high immigration country, uh, and Canada has shown very good tolerance for it and has been rewarded by by that, and not only for the immigrants, but for uh, Canadians uh, who are born here. The, this has improved the economic circumstances. Uh, but I think we're now in a period of time uh, where, unfortunately, because of uh, this long-term uh, deficiency in housing that you uh, you talked about uh it's it's now come home to roost how did we get here have we learned from what got us here i mean first time in my life i've ever heard all four major political parties in a provincial election say they want to build houses they need to build a million or a million and a half houses never heard that before in my life clearly they're addressing a problem that has not been addressed how did we get here so uh, again, I really don't know what's always been a kind of a struggle for me is you look at the housing starts numbers and the housing starts numbers in Canada haven't changed a lot since the 90s. Uh, and Canada's got a lot more people now. So we're not building houses at an increasing rate. And it turns out that the latest number is abysmal. Uh, the, the latest number is, is one of the worst housing start numbers we've had in many, many years. Um, I'm hoping it's just a bad statistical blip. But of course... And this is the downside to the high interest rate policy that's being used to curb inflation. Um, housing numbers that aren't weren't good already are being worsened by the fact that with higher interest rates, you tend to get fewer houses built. Why do we seem to be, why does build seem to be a bad word? Why can't uh, communities, municipalities, whatever provinces leverage this need to build the perfect community, to build what we need and what we want? Um, you know, many will say, well, there's just a shortage in certain areas. Well, there's a shortage everywhere and, and low cost. What is low cost? Because I don't think anybody knows what that is. Um, are we are we changing our attitude here and finally realizing that progress doesn't necessarily have to be um, uh, part of the discussion on urban sprawl and and, and saving the planet. I mean, it seems we're caring more, Michael, about the green belt than we are that people are living in tents. And yeah, again, so those I'm, are really I'm, hard I'm, decisions I'm, to make, but you I know, will like, say I, that... I'm I not into carving... I'm, I'm not in... Sorry, I'm not into carving up the green belt, Michael. I'm not into any of that at all. But it just <laughs> seems that our priorities are on the extremes. I think part of the problem is that still uh, a lot of people do own houses, and I don't think that they fully see the problem. Uh, the people who are, who are renting, who are trying to, 
to get the money together for their first house, uh, they see the problem. But I think they're not in the majority. Um, and I'm not sure that even though all the parties say they're going to build housing, um, again, all the parties say they want to increase immigration as well. And I do think that you have to think about all these things at the same time. Where is this going, Michael? I don't know. I think this is a, this is a really bad problem. I think in an otherwise pretty good-looking economy, uh, this is the black spot. And I think we have to solve the problem, but I don't know that I see the signs out there of it being solved. Michael Veal with us, Professor of Economics from Pasta University, Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Center. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yes, you too. Thanks. We remember the whole Bernardo scenario when all of a sudden we were made aware that Paul Bernardo, notorious killer, was sent from a maximum security prison to a medium. We also remember Marco Mendocino, the minister, coming out going, hey, this is disgusting. How did this ever happen? And then we all find out that, well, your office knew about it three months ahead of time and then found out again about three days ahead of time. And now uh, we're hearing again, or earlier rather, that uh, Bernardo was moved and we didn't get uh, uh, told about it because there are privacy concerns. Uh, is this about privacy or is it about not getting the message? Uh, how do you know anything about anybody's privacy if you're not answering the phone or reading the email? This is not an issue of things being kept secret. This is an issue of a minister who has no idea what is going on within its portfolio, his portfolio. And this certainly isn't the first time with this minister or various other ministers. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He is with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you. Hope you are as well. So is this now all an issue of Paul Bernardo has his own privacy rights? I mean, is this going to fly? This isn't about his privacy. They didn't pick the file. They didn't, under, they didn't pick up the phone. Yeah, there is uh, a privacy issue whenever ever government uh, collects personal information about somebody uh, or is doing something to them that um, is personal. A prison transfer would qualify, but the Privacy Act in almost every situation allows for an override when it's in the public interest to know something is happening. And the, the um, government always claims, oh, we can't do this, we can't do this, but there is the, the override there. Uh, that allows for uh, disclosures in the public interest. And knowing about this in advance is something the public did have a right to know, especially the families of the victims of Paul Bernardo, so that uh, they would be able to um, challenge the decision and and uh, try to affect it. So um, this is just a, a case where uh, the public interest was clear in, in having transparency and disclosure. As well, it's not an excuse that any minister should use for what has been revealed as being really just incompetence uh, of not um, passing on information and and not responding to it in the way that it should have been responded to. So is this really about anybody's privacy or is it, a, I mean, how can you find out about any of this if, 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 if you're not getting the information, if you're not getting an explanation? It seems that, um, again, blaming institutions, he wouldn't have got the information either way. No, it's true. And it, it is a, a, a situation very much of uh, transparency, uh, the public's right to know, and uh, the government handling, mishandling information and just essentially not uh, passing it on to um, everyone. Uh, if it is true that the minister was not alerted and, you know, everyone should justifiably be suspicious that maybe the minister was alerted and, you know, ministerial staff know that they're there to take the fall and cover for their minister in these kind of situations and get blamed for um, things uh, happening that the minister should have responded to in a different way. So, you know, that is part of the role of ministerial staff, and they, they know that going in. So uh, they take the fall, they take the blame, and the minister dodges responsibility and accountability. And that's very much the, the situation that we have here. Uh, it's the frequency, though, I think, that has people concerned. It just keeps happening. Um, getting back getting back to Bernardo, is this over for him? I mean, is this a done deal and everybody just hopes it all goes away? Uh, no, I mean, there can certainly be a, a reconsideration of a transfer like this and a review of the, the decision is going on um, by correctional services, and they could 
change their minds um, back to uh, a different decision um, based on certainly uh, the families of his victims are trying to make themselves heard in this process and trying to get information so that they can intervene um, with full information. And there's lots of others, of course, uh, crying out and saying that uh, he should never be eligible for such a transfer. And you know, that debate will continue and the reconsideration and review of the, uh, the, the situation will continue, I think, until they come out and say, no, that's our final decision or that they're reconsidering it. But they're not going to escape having to explain. Um, and this government, as you mentioned, in many, many situations is trying to escape explaining what's happened and how things have happened. We experienced ones ourselves at, at Democracy Watch when the RCMP told us that they were investigating Trudeau and uh, other ministers involved in the SNC-Lavalin scandal, and then came out and said, oh, we were wrong. Actually, the investigation ended four and a half months ago, and if they think they're going to escape explaining how that happened, they were, that they were able to release a letter saying that an investigation was ongoing when it had been over for four and a half, five months, they're not going to be able to escape that. The questions and the questioning will continue until they answer. Uh, Marco Manicino says corrections owes Canadians an explanation. Uh, does he? he? He does. Yes, definitely. Um, he, there are questions still about how this happened and that he's refusing to explain. And so um, he can't just say, I didn't receive the information. Uh, he has to prove that. And that means showing internal communications and this is why the Access to Information Act, the, which is the federal government transparency law, should apply to ministers' offices like the, the uh, Trudeau cabinet and, and Trudeau liberals promised to do back in 2015. And here we are in 2023, and they have broke that promise, and they have shown clearly they have no intention of keeping it. And what? Why? Why is, is, are these decision-making processes hidden from Canadians? It doesn't make sense. We're paying for all these people, and we have a right to know what, how they're making decisions and how they're undertaking actions. And there's very, very few things that actually need to be kept secret, far fewer than government always argues mm. uh, for privacy or secrecy, because usually that is covering up wrongdoing or incompetence. And Only got a situation in this case. Only got a few seconds left here, Duff. Can you give us any sort of update on a public inquiry? Where are we? Uh, it looks like the parties are moving uh, closer to an agreement, and uh, the opposition parties keep pressing forward. Uh, and so uh, hopefully the announcement will come before the end of the summer, and the commission uh, or commissioners will be up and running with their inquiry by September. Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Uh, privacy laws, um, no, that's pretty much an excuse with the whole Bernardo thing. Duff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one, an email from Sandra. As an experienced condo manager, I can tell you this is on housing. Condos are not the way to go. The long run, the long and very short of it is condos are about money, not about people. We'd be much better making smaller homes for people than throwing money at more condos, in my opinion. Signed, Sandra. Nighty night. Keep right except to pass. 